Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. In the news this week, on Saturday, 8 October, a massive explosion ripped through the Crimean Bridge over the Kerch Strait, connecting Crimea with mainland Russia, damaging a major line of communication and logistics supply for the Russian military. And yesterday, 10 October, saw widespread Russian military attacks on cities throughout Ukraine. I've seen a lively debate on Twitter about whether or not the bridge was a valid military target or if attacking it was an act of terrorism by the Ukrainians. My JAG friends assure me bridges are valid military targets according to the law of armed conflict. And as a former targeteer, I did target a lot of uh, bridges uh, during my career. So uh, definitely a, a valid military target to hit a bridge. Um, last Friday, I highlighted several articles from the October issue of Proceedings. I did not talk much about this month's American Sea Power Project article because my guests today are the authors, authors of that article. Joining me from Northern Virginia are Trent Hone and from Southern Maryland, Navy Lieutenant Eric Vorm. They are the authors of Intellectual Readiness is Vital to Sea Power, which appears on pages 50 to 57 of the October issue. If you have the print magazine, or you can find it online. Trent, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Very happy to be here. Yep, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let me read your bios quickly, just so our listeners are familiar with you. Trent Hone is an authority on the U.S. Navy of the early 20th century and a leader in the application of complexity science to organizational design. He's a consultant to a variety of organizations on processes and techniques, and writes and speaks about leadership, sense-making, organizational learning, and complexity. And he's the author of one of my favorite books, Learning War, The Evolution of Fighting Doctrine in the U.S. Navy, 1898 to 1945, which was published by the Naval Institute Press four years ago. And his newest book, which I can't wait to read, is called Mastering the Art of Command, Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, and Victory in the Pacific, which is brand new from uh, the Naval Institute Press as well. Trent, great great to have you on the show again. And Eric Vorm, Lieutenant Vorm, is a Medical Service Corps officer and aerospace experimental psychologist with the Naval, Naval Air Systems Command. He conducts research in human-machine teaming, human anatomy interaction, and human systems integration. His PhD is in human-computer interaction from Indiana University. He served with the U.S. Marine Corps during Operation Iraqi Freedom and is a member of the IEEE Robotics and Automation and Systems Man and Cybernetics Societies. Wow, that's a mouthful. Eric, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. All right. I want to start off. Your article says it starts by saying the intellect of naval leaders, including their education and mental agility, is vital to wartime readiness. So I'll go to Trent first, but I just want you two to discuss that concept. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, part of the, the charter here for, the, for this article, as you mentioned, it's part of the American Sea Power Project. And the focus that I was initially given uh, when we were talking about an article was uh, how, talking about the kinds of mental preparation that would be necessary for uh, the Navy and for its sister services to prepare adequately and, and succeed in, in time of war. 
And so that was that was the the, the charter. And I, I looked at it a little a little broadly. Uh, I had some ideas of how to to bring these together. And one of those ideas was a recent conversation that I had had with with Eric, who ended up being a, a co-author uh, and the study that he was engaged in to look at intellectual readiness, uh, to understand how the Navy could better prepare, not just for for combat, but especially on how to bring in innovative uh, technologies and, and, and new ways of uh, bringing to bear innovative ideas uh, for for the success of the service. And I thought that that would be a nice theme to to draw out. So in some early drafts, uh, I put that together and uh, shared it with Eric to make sure that I wasn't misrepresenting any of his ideas or his perspective. He got back to me with a lot of really valuable feedback and uh, it worked out that uh, we decided to co-author it. So uh, yeah, vital to wartime readiness. I, I think so. This is a theme that I really wanted to draw out because uh, there are uncertainties that are going to happen in any kind of a conflict. You just mentioned the, the bridge attack uh, in Crimea. And, you know, I, I, that was a surprise to me. I didn't expect to wake up Saturday morning, see that on Twitter, like, like you did, like so many others did. Uh, and there's got to be an ability to be ready for those things that are, are not just surprising, but also really uh, undermine our assumptions about how things are gonna play out, about how we're gonna work together, about how a, a, a peer competitor is going to behave and perform. And I think one of the things that Eric and I tried to, to speak to was the kind of preparation that is necessary uh, mentally, intellectually uh, to, to deal with that. So Eric, uh, same question to you, but now that, uh, now that I know that you were working on a study, uh, I'm curious, was that study one that was uh, undertaken on your own volition or was it something that the Navy had asked you to study? Uh, yeah, great question. So I was approached in very early 2021 or very late 2020 um, by representatives from the uh, OPNAV N1, which is Manpower Personnel and Training and Education which, you know, to, to, to folks who are not, you know, that familiar with the Navy's structures, you can just think of it as the Navy's human resources department. They make all the, the policies and, and they have a large role to play in virtually everything having to do with, with people, how they're uh, brought into the Navy, how they're trained and prepared um, for specific jobs, how they're promoted, um, all, all sorts of different things. And the, um, the impetus for the study was that there's a, there's a growing, say, cause of concern that we have taken our love of technology and our trust of technology as a determinant for um, victory in, uh, in a kinetic fight a little bit too far. And the, the overemphasis on technology development um, kind of leaves a lot of potential vulnerabilities. Um, some may actually put it in a different way just to say, which one wins wars, better technology or better people? And there's debate within that. So this, uh, this group of people approached me and said, we really want to figure out, you know, and wrap our heads around what, what is this concept of intellectual readiness? You know, we have we have other forms of readiness that many of our listeners probably are aware of, you know, like we have physical readiness, you know, we have to do our physical fitness test every, you know, twice a year. And we have medical readiness where we get immunizations. And so our sailors 
and Marines are always prepared to deploy anywhere around the world within a very short period of time. We have material readiness, you know, uh, you know, the ships that we have have to remain in a certain condition of material readiness so that we can just pull up anchor and take off if we need to. So what's the equivalent for our people? And within that, there's also some underlying tensions that training can very easily through no fault of, of, of any specific organization, but training can very easily become a crutch. And the way that you train people can become sort of this rote memorization rather than, um, say, training people to think creatively or to respond creatively um, when, when presented with new problems they've never seen before. And so those were the motivations behind the study that I ran. And I ran that study through all of 2021 uh, and formally concluded in June of this year, 2022. And Trent just happened to be one of the people that I called up because I had read his book, Learning War, and also because I, I knew of his reputation through mutual groups that we're, we're both you know, belonging to. I really wanted to get his perspective on what do you think intellectual readiness was or is? And um, we, we became quick friends and had some really productive conversations. And so it was only uh, sort of fitting that we could follow on um, that with, with the, you know, the article that we published here in this uh, October proceedings. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you guys got to pair up for this because I think it's just a terrific combination of your own uh, intellects and, and also, you know, what your your areas of expertise, and it comes out very nicely. Uh, Trent, your new book is about Chester W. Nimitz, the five-star admiral, the commander of the Pacific Fleet in World War II. Uh, and this article talks about him quite a bit as well. Can you describe Nimitz's intellect and why it was so crucial to U.S. victory in World War II? Yeah, I, I did want to relate uh, Nimitz to, to this in, in sort of the opening anecdote. One of the things that was clear to me from the research and looking into the early days of Nimitz's uh, assumption of command of the Pacific Fleet and then things that he tried to do in its early months, uh, he, he's dealing with a, with a challenge that sometimes doesn't quite make it into uh, the histories or receive the attention that I think it deserves. And, and that is that... Um, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor, the way in which the Japanese initiate the war is is a shock. It's it's a surprise on multiple levels. I mean, obviously, the, the Pacific fleet, the heart of it, that's its battle line being destroyed in the attack is shocking in one way. But, but it's also shocking because it, it, no other uh, Navy had brought together six fleet carriers like that. It, it created a force of, of naval aviation that had that kind of striking power. So. The, the results of the attack are shocking. What the Japanese have done doctrinally is shocking. And then also it, it, it knocks officers of the Pacific Fleet back on their heels. They're not anticipating this for the reasons that, that I just spoke to, but at the same time, they have an assumption. They are accustomed to being uh, the aggressor. This is what their training has inculcated within them. We will, you know, we will seize the initiative, we will act aggressively, and, and that is how we're going to control battles, it's how we're going to control operations, and it's how we'll take charge of the war when it eventually happens, should it occur. Uh, and Pearl Harbor shatters all that. And, and part of this is, is very deliberate. Like if you, if you look back at Japanese thinking here, you know, it, it's not just destroy ships, it's, it's destroy the will of the United States Navy and its people to fight. 
right? So that there can be essentially a fait accompli in, in, on the Western side of the Pacific. And Nimitz is faced with that, that challenge. He's got to get beyond that. And, and so he displays, using the terms of our article, uh, intellectual readiness and, and then tries to stimulate it within the officers when, in, in his command in the Pacific fleet. Right. You've got to recover from this. And, and some officers aren't immediately ready to, to sort of ease back into or, or, or get right back into the kind of fighting that is going to be required. Others are, are more disposed to that. You know, uh, Vice Admiral Halsey, or at least he was Vice Admiral at the time, is is in that mindset. And, and uh, others uh, are ready for that sort of thing. Uh, but Nimitz has to approach this cautiously. He has to use his ability not just to chart a path forward. This is, you know, sort of the vision that I have for, for my command, but also understand where his uh, subordinates are at that time. What are they capable of? What are they ready to do? What is their own uh, intellectual readiness in that in that moment or in those early weeks? And amplify it where where it is present and then try to reinvigorate it where, where it is not. And so I thought that was a, a useful... Um, vignette to to open the to open the article with uh, that built on uh, research that went into the book. A, a follow on question for you, uh, Trent or, or Eric. Um, where did where did Nimitz get the intellectual basis, his own foundation, if you will, uh, to be ready for that moment, to be ready for command of the Pacific Fleet at the at the moment after Pearl Harbor when it was knocked back on its on its heels. And when it had been surprised strategically, operationally, tactically, uh, and how did, how did, how, how did he himself, but also how did the Navy prepare him for that, that challenge? I think I can, I can talk to the, the Navy more broadly, more, more uh, effectively, but let me just say initially with, with Nimitz, it, it, he's, he displays a quiet confidence through much of his career that is really impressive. There, uh, I'm sure many listeners know that he ran one of his early commands, uh, a destroyer of the Philippines, ran it aground. And uh, supposedly, uh, when that happened, he got out a nice deck chair, you know, something that had been made there locally in the Philippines, and sat, you know, sat on the forecastle and just sort of waited for the tide to come in or waited for some assistance because there wasn't anything else he or his crew could do at that moment. Right. So don't don't worry. Don't don't fret. Just wait until circumstances change and then take advantage of them when they when they do uh, that. I have trouble with that story personally, because I, I I don't think I could have been that calm. Absolutely not. You run you run a ship aground. Good grief. This is a problem. We have to fix it. We have to fix it now. Right. That, Cause that, for panic. Yeah. Yeah. Closer closer to some kind of panic. He, but he didn't act that way. And so there is something about his personality from an early stage right because that's when he's a very young officer that that allows him to find some inner calmness to deal with these in, in a way that i think very few of us very few of us can but conditioning from a naval perspective you know from the navy uh we tried to get into it in the article i think there's a lot of work that goes on in the 20s and 30s before that as well but really there's a there's a system that is built up in the 20s and 30s to try to condition officers to think through challenging problems from multiple perspectives there, the, there are many exercises some of these are at the naval war college some of these are actually in the fleet and, and maybe i shouldn't use the term exercises because that connotes certain 
habits uh, that we tried to talk to in the article. They're, they're more like open-ended problems, really confront an officer with a problem. You, you, there's no rote solution to follow. There's no checklist you can go through. There is a pattern that you can follow, you know, to think about how you assess the situation that you are in and then how to analyze it and then how to frame plans and orders for subordinates. That is fairly well established. But in terms of the ingredients that you bring to that, what actually are you going to do? Uh, what options do you choose to analyze? What orders do you choose to craft your subordinates? That is all creative energy that has to, that the, the those officers had to bring to the table at that at that time. And so Nimitz is accustomed to going through this, and many of his uh, contemporaries are accustomed to going through this. Uh, you don't just follow rote procedures. You, you learn those. You learn those uh, for the various departments that you go through. You know when you learn to command a ship or submarine or uh, an aircraft, but figure out a lot of these things yourself. So he's accustomed to that. He was accustomed to to thinking through those those kinds of challenges. And um, I'll let Eric add to that because it looks like he's been thinking of something. Oh, I mean. Always a uh, always enjoyable to 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 learn history. I I would say I'm I'm very much a, an amateur student of history. Um, but but I can say in in reading about Nimitz, um, one thing that uh, strikes me is what would the equivalent if if he were to run a ship aground today, what would the equivalent response be? And um, I'm not a surface warfare officer, but I know plenty. Uh, of SWOs, and uh, I can pretty much guarantee you they would not be sitting on a deck chair relaxing and saying, eh, don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. Not because it's not an emergency situation, but because that's uh, essentially what you would consider a career-ending um, situation in today's Navy for sure. Um, Nimitz at the time, I, I believe, this is just Eric's opinion, but um, was very much a product of a time that was a little bit more accommodating for, you know, coming up with new ideas and executing them and maybe a little bit more appreciative of those things. There's kind of a common adage that we use that I think is appropriate here, which is your ability to think is predicated on your perceived ability to act. And what that means is in cognitive psychology terms, there's actually a way that you can limit people's creativity by artificially making them think that they have more constraints than they really do. So we can, we can make this in, in a laboratory environment, and then we can observe how creative or not creative people are when they constrain themselves, when they believe they can only act within a certain way. Um, Hopefully that's not too abstract. Hopefully that, that, you know, this is getting, getting the point across, but you know, there is a time when, you know, if you can get the job done, even if it's not pretty, okay, you've gotten the job done and Hey, Hey, good job. You know, you, you got, you got the ship off of the shore or, you know, whatever the situation is um, today, I would, I would venture to say there's a, a lot more emphasis on there's a specific right way. There's a checklist that you should follow there's an established, this is the, this is the way. Um, and that is um, itself kind of a cultural limiter to people's creativity. Your ability to think is directly associated to your perceived constraints. And if you're in an environment or you're in a culture 
or an organization that makes you feel like if you do anything outside of these boundaries, you're wrong or you might be punished or you're going to be interpreted as, say, insubordinate. Whereas maybe in Nimitz's time, that, that same action could be interpreted as creative or innovative. That has a big effect on people's abilities to think. And that's kind of a core point that we tried to drive home in this article. It is not that we lack intellectually ready people. There is no, and I'm going to be very definitive about this, there's no lack of intellect in today's United States Navy. There's no, we don't have enough trained individuals or enough talented or creative individuals. They are very much present in today's Navy. But many of the ways that we do business really constrains them. And in the event of a shock and surprise, not unlike Pearl Harbor, that's a very concerning concept. If they've been trained not to think and they've been trained to be afraid of trying new things, what happens when all the game uh, rules change? And that's kind of the central core uh, point to our article. One of our most frequent listeners, Austere Roberto, brings up a, an example. He says, so the nuclear Navy has to be purely procedural, but how do you break those blinders in the tactical realm? And, and I was thinking while you were talking, Eric, I was thinking of uh, my former co-host, Ward Carroll, you know, who is an F-14 guy. And, you know, when the when the F-14 gets into a flat spin, that's not the time to try to think creatively, right? There are very, very... Uh, strict procedures to follow to get the airplane uh, to do what you want it to do. Uh, and it's not to think about a pink sky at that, at that moment. Right. Uh, so uh, um, if I just want to tease out a little bit more because the article also talks about some of the research and the interviews that you conducted uh, with today's uh, Navy leaders about training and education and about exercises. Um, you know, what, what, what are some of the, the key takeaways that that came from your research and those those interviews that you conducted as part of your research. Well, um, you're you're absolutely right, and I, I appreciate our listeners' question here because it is important to realize there there are many many reasons why we have established standard operating procedures, um, and and there's at no time would I suggest that you know like we should we should be creative at all times and and you know throw out the book for everything. That's certainly not the case. There are absolutely plenty of lessons that we have learned the hard way, and we have actually come up with fairly stable heuristics or rubrics to follow. And um, and that's and there's there's very important times there. The types that of of things that Trent and I are trying to to really focus on are we've never seen this before. You know, this is a move we've never practiced. This is a, a situation we never even anticipated. Those are the types where we have no standard operating procedures. And it's in those situations where we really need humans to do what humans do best, which is we have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to creatively come up with new problem, you know, new problem solving techniques and perceive new ways of doing things. And so it's in these unfamiliar one-off events that we've never trained for that's really where intellectual readiness is a very critical thing, not in uh, the type like a flat spin, to use your example, where we have seen this before, we understand how it happens, we also understand the physics of how to get out of it, and so here's what you need to do. That training is very important, but the type of training that we're talking about is much more um, 
you know, what is it you do when you don't know? So your question was, you know, what did I learn from those interviews? Well, it's, it's, it's valuable to mention my study had two phases to it. The model building phase, which is what is a model of intellectual readiness? And by a model, I mean like psychological model or organizational model. What are all the characteristics or attributes, um, personality, things like that, that make up this concept of intellectual readiness? Not just for individuals, not say just to say like define like what is the perfect sailor, but also what is the organizational culture? Um, what are the t characteristics that an organization has to be to be able to be a learning organization and an adaptive organization? So to build that model, I took a multi-perspective approach. I did uh, formal interviews with three different groups of people. I looked and talked to historians and folks who are experts in naval innovation history and uh, some sociologists who are experts in organizational culture and how it affects innovation and creativity from the historical perspective. So this is where Trent and I became good friends because he was one of those historians that I uh, reached out to and asked to participate. So I got the that perspective because it's important to realize this is not a, say, a new thing. I mean, if you think about it, the turn of the, the 20th century, aviation was an emerging technology. We were still just kind of figuring out not only how to fly reliably, but how can we use these new things, you know, tactically and strategically? So we've been through this type of thing before, and I, re I really want to make sure not to, to be ignorant of what we can learn from that perspective. Then I also talked to folks that are in the current Navy right now that are on the absolute bleeding edge of technology. So folks that are in experimental units like DDG-1000, the USS Michael Monsoor, you know, it's a one-of-a-kind, brand-new guided missile destroyer. It's a technological marvel. It's built in a completely different way than the Arleigh Burke class or the, any of the other classes of ships that we have. So talk to those folks, folks on the Columbia-class submarine, folks that are working on uh, the large and medium unmanned surface vessels, folks that are working on various different unmanned underwater vehicles, and not only just working on these that are still kind of in a prototype stage, but part of their job is figure out how we can use it. So they're kind of empowered in a way to be sort of an experimental unit and coming up with strategies and tactics is part of what they're doing, which means they're doing a lot of fumbling around. They're, they're doing a lot of stumbling and figuring things out, sometimes the hard way. So I talked to those folks and said, you know, who works really well in this environment? And what do these technologies change? What do you need more of that you didn't have enough of? What kind of training would be necessary if this were to suddenly become a standard in the Navy and everyone were to get this or every unit were to be, you know, say doing this now. So that's the current perspective. Then I also went to the far future. I went to Silicon Valley. I talked to folks at NVIDIA, Tesla. I spoke to the chief roboticist at NASA. I talked to folks at the Quantum Institute. I've, I talked to all kinds of folks who are absolute experts in these really, really, really advanced technologies, many of which may not become mature even for another 20 years potentially. But it's important to get their perspective because you got to start planning now. You know, organizationals don't change on a, on a dime. So if you start making some small changes now, 
you know, it, the, the, the sailors of tomorrow are just being born today. So those three perspectives, those interviews helped me to build out the model of intellectual readiness. And then from there, I validated that model, which was another sort of phase of that. During those interviews, the most important thing was I started with this idea to say, essentially, I was thinking my job was to define the perfect sailor of the 21st century. Very quickly, within the first month of these interviews, and I did this for seven months straight, a total of 49 people, over 114 hours of in, uh, transcripts that I had. Um, within the first month, it became very evident to me exactly what I said earlier, which is we don't lack intellectually ready people today. They're all around us. In fact, I was speaking to many of them firsthand on satellite phones, on folks who were floating around in the South China Sea right here and right now. Um, really quickly, I saw the bigger issue, the more salient issue, the more pressing and immediate issue is the way that our organization itself, the way that we've set up our rules and our practices, the way that we teach people, all of those things are actually acting as constraints. Those things are actually causing us more problems, um, sometimes unknowingly. And that is the real pernicious issue that I discovered through these interviews. So really quickly, it became no longer just what is like semen Jimmy? How does we how do we get more semen Jimmy's, you know, the perfect semen? But how do we get an organization that allows people like Seaman Jimmy and Captain James and whatever else to really thrive and be able to respond when they when we need them to? So we got another question from one of our listeners, Harry Lime. He asked, does the Navy still do fleet problems like you read about from the 1930s to test out new technology and how to use them? And I know... Uh, uh, Trent, you talk about the fleet problems a lot in your book, Learning War, and it, there's there's reference to that and that um, the, the the process of of learning and applying and you know studying and war gaming and then doing the fleet problems in the 30s and uh, and the lead up. So I'll, I'll I'll throw that question to you to start. Sure, uh, there has been interest in reinvigorating uh, this kind of concepts. Uh, lately, I know there have been some large exercises, uh, especially out in the Pacific. Uh, but I think in generally, in general, the the approach that the Navy is taking today is is not as as comprehensive as what it did in in the interwar period, the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, there are a couple different uh, reasons for that. Of course, you know, at that time, uh, uh, the Navy was able to. Uh, hold most of its uh, ships close to or near the continental United States. So fleet problems could be large. They would be sort of the large operational event uh, every year. Uh, and there weren't so many forces that were forward deployed, places like the Middle East or, or the Western Pacific. Uh, and so it was relatively straightforward to, to do that, to bring a large element of the fleet together, to, to practice, to rehearse, and also to experiment and explore these capabilities of new technologies. Given the constraints that the Navy faces today, the fact that ships have to be uh, on station much more often, uh, farther out from, from the United States and its shores, uh, the Navy is trying alternative mechanisms to, to figure out how best to do these kinds of experiments. Right? There are groups that Eric talked about that are learning how to 
do the best with new technologies, whether they be shipboard or uh, at sea, like uh, unmanned vehicles uh, above, uh, on, and below the surface of the sea. And I think some of that is having some uh, very fruitful learning. What, what I am uncertain about is, is it as comprehensive or extensive as some of the open-ended exercises that were able to be conducted before World War II? And that, that is something that we wanted to address in the article, and it gets back to the point that Eric was just making, which is that uh, the environment today is more constrained, best as we can, as best as we can perceive, and it, it feels like there aren't as many options when some of these exercises or, or uh, problems are engaged in. Uh, that is, the approaches are are more rote, uh, evaluated more in terms of how closely do they conform to best practices, rather than how well do they identify new approaches that may be unlocking a specific capability or, or uh, allowing us to maximize the benefits of a particular technology. Uh, and and that, is, uh, that is a challenge. That is a challenge that I think needs to be addressed. So it, it, there's, there's challenges within terms of how to organize all this, uh, which I spoke to at the beginning, uh, constraints today that didn't exist then, but also I think there is a different attitude toward how these are conducted and evaluated. And, and that I think is, is uh, probably a more substantial, more substantial issue. And, and one of the things that we tried to do in the article was provide some recommendations for things that the Navy could do to, to get beyond some of the challenges that we believe it faces uh, in the current moment. Uh, that's a great point. And, and uh, I'll, for our listeners, uh, if you go back to early 2018, there was a series of three articles by Admiral Scott Swift when he was the Pacific Fleet commander. Uh, one of them was about uh, specifically about fleet battle problems that he was bringing back at the time and looking for ways to do more creative um, exercises at sea, uh, specifically with forces as they deployed from the West Coast towards Hawaii and using an op for and using some virtual and constructive as well. So when I was out at, uh, at uh, Tailhook a few weeks ago out in Fallon, Nevada, there's a big conversation about LVC live virtual constructive and things that they could do, particularly around fifth generation threats uh, at the at the Fallon range complex. And there's certain things that you you don't want to show um, tactically in in the real world to your adversaries. Uh, you know, the Chinese have got over overhead you know, satellites, and constellations of uh, ISR capabilities, et cetera. So some of those capabilities you might want to only do virtually or in constructively. Um, but it, it, you know, that whole, how do you do that? How do you do the fleet problems of, of the 1930s in the 2020s um, with the new technology, with the fifth gen and sixth gen weapons, with, uh, you know, cyber capabilities and with uh, electric, you know, electric weapons it, it gets really complicated really fast, but I, I, your, your article really points out very well that it's important to be able to have those open-ended problems, right? Where you don't have the, the textbook solution and where maybe the, the individual unit level CEOs or the carrier strike group CEOs, you know, commanders have the ability to, to learn from mistakes. It, not, you know, not just, uh, Hey, got to go out and here's the, here's the gouge answer, but, well, we went out, we tried this, this is why we tried it, and it failed. Okay, so what do we learn from that, right? That that learning, I think that was a big part of, Trent, if I remember your book correctly, a lot of the learning that, that happened for Nimitz and his generation was the, the ability to 
make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes in the fleet problems of the 1930s. So really critical point there. Um, I want to just, you know, we're running a little bit short on time here. So I want to get to some of the recommendations from your article. So, so there's two different categories that you, you gentlemen make. One is uh, recommendations for individuals. And the second is recommendations for organizations. So I'll let, I'm not sure which one of you wrote which section there, if you, you collaborated, but who wants to take the individual rec the recommendations for individuals? Well, I'll, I'll jump in on that one, I suppose, um, only because that's uh, uh, somewhat of, of the follow-on work that I've um, continued to do. You know, I've, I've received funding to do, you know, to take this study and continue on with it. And a lot of the work that needs to be done now is is really the, the sort of the nitty-gritty kind of work like, okay, well, um, let's, for instance, the, the model of intellectual readiness that I developed was a 12-factor model, which means there's 12 individual characteristics or traits or attributes that we are interested in. Uh, so let's take one like far transfer learning. Far transfer learning is this concept where uh, you learn uh, the fundamentals of, of, of a thing um, in one domain. And somehow if you're able to take concepts from that domain and then apply them and use them in a completely different domain. Um, and the farther these domains are from each other, the, that's why you call it far transfer. And that is very, very, very important in a number of um, a, ways to this concept of intellectual readiness. So how do you train someone to do that? That is an open-ended research question. So the Navy can't necessarily just say, okay, well, here's a new curriculum. Every single person needs to use it. So we have to figure out, well, how do you actually develop those types of traits? And a lot of it has to do with uh, the nitty gritty stuff. Like how do you promote active learning and not just passive learning? How do you uh, create training that's not just teaching someone how to pass a test, but actually teaching them how to think? Um, and a lot of that comes down to similar to what we were just discussing in our like naval exercises. Um, I think a favorite that everyone likes to bring up is from Star Trek, you know, the concept of like a Kobayashi Maru, <laughs> which is this sort of open-ended, um, you can't necessarily win, although not everybody's aware of that before you watch Star Trek. Um, but you know, it, it's a, it tests your ability to respond and think creatively and use your resources intelligently while you're encountering really fast faced uncertainty and things like that. That's the kind of like training that would actually take quite a big paradigm shift because right now, quite frankly, we, we teach to the test and it, uh, it's not necessarily, our training is currently not necessarily something that. Um, promote something like far transfer learning as an example. So for the individual, these are the types of things that now a lot of other experts have to come in and help build out, build out the tests themselves, make recommendations by say rating or designator. So different officer communities or different enlisted communities have different trainings. You've got to build those kind of trainings out, test for their efficacy, make sure that you're actually training them in the ways that are, you know, helpful. And those are, those are like really important. And that's an ongoing process. There's nothing like glaringly, we need to like, this ship is sinking right now. Training is constantly being updated and validated and things like that. But training 
right now does not prioritize the types of characteristics that we're generally talking about. And that's the kind of recommendation, broadly recommendation that we would really uh, think would be very advantageous for us moving forward. Trent, do you want to tackle uh, the, the recommendations your article makes for the organization, the organizational level Navy? Sure. Uh, I can spend some time on uh, one that I feel very passionately about because it's something that often comes out of conversations that I have with currently serving naval officers. And that's the importance of uh, embracing uh, adaptability, resiliency, creativity. We've talked a lot about creativity, open and problem solving. The problem is that many ways in which the the navy evaluates officers and itself today is is through the window or the lens of efficiency right and when we are trying to make things as, as efficient as possible we are optimizing a certain approach to things we are optimizing for uh you know no fat no resiliency no redundancy right and and what that then carries with it is this assumption that we're going to be able to devise a plan stick to the plan and then that that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna manage and we're gonna run it the the problem is a, life in general we know unanticipated things come up well that's going to be even worse if there uh is a move toward uh an actual conflict or a a a, a near uh conflict situation and so you need more you need more slack in the system to be able to ensure that there is room to flex and adapt and adjust and have resilient approaches, more fault tolerant approaches that can deal with the uncertainty or the unanticipated events that, that, that come up. And this could be as simple as, you know, how do you, how do you plan for, you know, yard time, you know, when a ship has to go in and get uh, refurbished you know, you're going to encounter things that weren't part of that plan initially. So how do you, how do you get a head start on identifying those things? How do you make sure that you're accounting for those things? How do you, how can you adapt and adjust and have some slack in terms of the inventory that you have ready to deal with the kinds of work that that ship is going to need while it is in uh, and, and, and being overhauled? Um, resiliency there is necessary. It's even more necessary when we think about uh, operational constraints and and how that is going to have to happen so this this emphasis on efficiency at the organizational level is problematic that that doesn't mean that we should be you know wasteful of the nation's resources it's just there has to be the appropriate balance uh, between efficiency and between this ability to adapt and adjust and be resilient when the unanticipated things uh, come up and and occur something else that we recommended that I want to say in the end is is provide some uh, more serious training or familiarization for how officers and other senior uh, staff members can deal with innovation and innovators, how they can manage these kinds of processes. One of the things that uh, came out that we wanted to recommend was that sometimes the, the tools that currently serving officers are equipped with aren't disposing them well to deal with the kinds of work that's necessary to wrestle with the new technology and to make it feasible and to bring it to fruition right there's a lot of uncertainty that goes along with that there's a lot of false starts that come with that you have to really be thinking about you know options the future that you want to try to achieve but not be linear in terms of your approach of how you get there 
And uh, we feel that officers could get more familiarization with how this can be, how, how this can be done, how this can be done and encouraged so that we've got an environment that can foster creativity, foster innovation and foster more inventive use of the technologies that are available out there, both within the, the service, but also the, the, the public sphere. And so that's something else that I think is quite, is quite valuable and important. Yeah, those are terrific points. And I think back to, you know, particularly during OIF and OEF, you know, the Navy was supplying a product, which was carrier strike groups to, you know, CENTCOM to the Middle East. And, you know, the, to your point about leaning out and about making things as efficient as possible from that, that period of really the 2010s, uh, you know, the, two, the 2020s and 2010s, where we were leaning out and, and building carrier strike group readiness to deploy to the, you know, to the Persian Gulf area and then come back and then get ready. And there was a, you know, it, it was very flowcharty. It was very... Um, you know, and, and, and I think the lesson that you just pointed out is one that's, you know, the, the world is learning right now. You know, you think about supply chain managers, you think about the assumptions that were made about, you know, lean uh, manufacturing and, oh, we're just going to offshore these things to the most um, efficient and cheapest place to, to manufacture them. But that didn't take into account a whole lot of things that have now happened in terms of how goods move around the world, around you know energy supply, all kinds of things, right? So that ability, the companies that thrived were the ones that probably had a little bit more resiliency built in or baked in. Uh, and I think that that point about resiliency is incredibly important for the military, for the Navy right now. So um, be, as we wrap up, parting shots, any, any last minute, oh, by the way, you know, uh, uh, saved rounds that you might have. Uh, I certainly do. I, I would, I would say the, the, the single largest say point, um, that I always try to make is, um, top down is not the only way our military historically has always been a very vertical organization. And it's the same with the way that we approach innovation. Ideas come from above. They're expected from the people at the very top. They have, they follow one direction, you know, you sort of follow your marching orders and the process is all built from a top down structure. The problem is we have very intelligent people, increasingly technologically savvy people. I interviewed someone who had a computer science degree from Stanford, the top computer science program in the entire country. And he's a Lieutenant junior grade assistant fire watch officer on a DDG. So we have an increasingly technologically savvy junior population of leaders who can look at our system and say, you know what, there's a lot of inefficiencies here. Or look at our system and say, wow, we actually could do something completely radically different if you just let me do it. And that's a bottom-up approach. We have to be able to accommodate ideas from somewhere other than a four-star or nothing else at all. Um, or a TICOM or a cent, you know, some, some very high organization. Our current acquisition strategy is just only top-down only. And that's where you really are limiting intellectual readiness. We've got to be able to do it a little bit of both. And if we could just change one thing, that would be it, is somehow make, a, a, make our whole entire system more accepting 
embracing the idea of change and letting those ideas come up and letting them blossom and grow and promoting them up rather than what happens a lot is we have this cadre of people who see it as their goal to keep things as they are. And so they kind of, they, they see themselves as gatekeepers of, of uh, ideas rather than facilitators of ideas. And that's, that's to me, the single largest threat to intellectual readiness. That's a salient point. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Trent, real quick. Yeah, to, to, to augment that a bit, I think, yeah, it, there has to be a bottom-up. That is one of the things that the Navy did well uh, in the first half of the 20th century. It was encouraging bottom-up ideas. Um, you know, it, it, we, we highlighted some, some aspects in the article. One of the things that sits in the back of my head is the thatch weave, which was used by um, Grumman F4F pilots uh, against uh, Japanese fighter planes, uh, right? That is a bottom-up idea. And it, it is spurred by this, oh, gee, here's a situation we didn't consider before, but it is enabled by the procedures that they had become conversant at, namely, you know, high angle deflection shooting, the ability to hit a target that is moving rapidly across across your, your, your line of sight. Uh, there's network also, right? Innovation, creative ideas often happen through a network, a connection of individuals. And I think our article is a great example of that, right? Eric found me through a network. We got to talking, ideas flourished. Boom, we have an article. It's part of the, the Sea Power series. It's in proceedings. And now we're talking about it on a podcast because one of the things that I keep in my head is the value of establishing these kinds of connections to bring new ideas into my own sphere and then also you know, use those for the benefits of, of the people that I, that I engage with. Uh, I think the Navy needs to be mindful of that. Right? It can't be top down. It can't just be bottom up. There's got to be networks. Uh, networks of learning in the operating theaters were a key aspect of introducing new approaches like the Combat Information Center and other innovative things uh, that the Navy came up with in the Second World War. So finding a way to do that now before it is absolutely necessary is it, going to be great um, because then it can be called on when it is necessary. Uh, so that that's the point that I'd leave us with. Uh, key points. Uh, those are those are really really a uh, great way to put an exclamation mark at the end of this uh, this interview. So Trent Hone and Eric Vorm, thank you so much for your article. Thanks for contributing to the American Sea Power Project. Thanks for being on the show today. This was a just a terrific conversation. Uh, well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute and produced by Heather Legg. If you enjoy the show, like us, subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member of the Naval Institute at usni.org forward slash join. And until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.